Good morning. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, starting into verse 1. So the children get to be magnificent and the youth are going to be sweaty. So I think i got to come up with a new name for uh, what we're doing this week. We're going to be uh, uh, about 40 of us doing projects around town, Project Sweat. So please keep us in your, in your prayers. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the purpose of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Saturdays around the eastern coast of the United States in the south are a unique place. Something goes on that is very American. Perhaps you participated yesterday in it. Perhaps you love to do it. You've seen it. You've driven past it. You've seen signs. Yard sales. Every neighborhood at some point probably has someone or multiple people who have a yard sale. I participated yesterday in a neighborhood yard sale. I'd seen them and uh, never participated in one, but it was fun. It was fun to drive around the neighborhood, walk around the neighborhood with my kids, and go from house to house and table to table and root through someone else's stuff, finding little treasures here and there, things that we might want, things that we wanted to kind of barter over, and found myself uh, arguing over a quarter, arguing someone just to, down a little bit lower. I really want this. But it was fun this week as a family as we kind of prepared for the yard sale. It started out as my wife and I, well, what can we put out? What can we put out? What can we sell? And our kids were not very excited about it until we said, well, whatever you put out, you get to keep the money for. And there's where the tidal wave uh, was unleashed. All of a sudden, there are things being put into the, onto the table that were, were greatly valuable to us. Uh, there are toys that we had just gotten in for Christmas and different things and the, the family TV and the family dog had a sticker on him. And so we're having to pull things off. No, we don't want to sell that. You don't understand the concept here. This is things that we're, we're willing to part with. Someone else might want or someone else might need. If you've ever done this before, if you're a yard seller or if you've ever uh, been to one before, hosted one, uh, you walk along the tables and there are boxes full of little items for 25 cents or stacks of books, three for a dollar, uh, a... Uh, 
a bunch of clothes on one end that you can rummage through. But how do you decide what to put out there? My kids didn't get the concept. They wanted the, the, the high ticket items out there. Uh, so they wanted to, uh, uh, to sell everything we owned. Uh, how do you choose what you're going to put out? It, it's not the most valuable things to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be selling them. It's things that maybe have no more value to you or they've seen their many years go by and maybe it's something that you feel someone else might want. How do you choose what you're going to sell? How do you price these things? I had no idea. I'm thinking $40? Here's $100. No, it's this is worth $4 and this is $10 and this is $15 and people are going to barter and bargain and you're going to end up with less than half what you asked. So how do you price these things? How do you determine their value to someone else? How do you mark these things? You walk from table to table and house to house and different people have their their trademark signature. Maybe their red stickers or their yellow stickers. They would write the price right on the item. So how do you mark the items that are for sale? Our passage this morning is a, a rich passage. There's far more here than we can cover in a half hour sermon. But it is a, a rich, textured uh, um, series of verses that are, that are dripping with theology. It's the foundation for the rest of the book of Ephesians that we'll look at in the next few weeks. But this section of Ephesians is, is about choosing and buying and marking. As we see God's wonderful plan of redemption and salvation unfold before us. How God is a God who chooses. Christ is the one who gives us life and buys our lives back and the Holy Spirit marks that we belong to the Lord. So from first to last, salvation is of the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This sermon this morning and this passage this morning is meant to lead us to the throne. Meant to lead us to the throne. If you're looking for something to do, what we do is we worship. We worship through this passage. We worship the God who has led us here through Jesus Christ. It's meant to lead us in humility to a deep sense of, of gratitude-laden worship this morning. I want to answer three questions this morning from this passage. Why do we receive God's blessing? Why do we receive God's blessing? How are God's blessings, His spiritual blessings, secured for us? And third, how do we know we will continue to receive God's spiritual blessings throughout our life? Beginning a new book, you have to talk a little bit about the author and who the book is being written to. We won't spend a great deal this morning of time looking at Paul's life. Perhaps you're familiar with it. A man who was deeply re religious, a persecutor of the church before Christ. He was a man of great knowledge and insight but he was one who persecuted God's people. And yet we see in the book of Acts that God pursued him on the road to Damascus. God pursued him and blinded him for a time that he might understand his sin, he might understand his neediness, he might understand who Jesus Christ is. So Paul had a deep understanding of being pursued, had a deep understanding of, of who Jesus was. He had a personal encounter with Christ that changed him, that marked him, so the author of this book is one who is intimate with Jesus Christ, who knows about salvation. And he paints the picture of salvation throughout this passage and throughout this book. 
He's writing to a particular people. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. This church was established uh, as, as the town was at a, at, a, at a key place along the Roman road, a, a road that went from east to west. It was a, a key trading road where millions of people went back and forth. And so this town was established by the, ruin, by the Romans as a garrison, but also as a, as a commercial center. And so a church was planted here where there are people. A church is needed. And so this church was, was tasked specifically with, uh, with bringing the gospel to this key strategic location. It was a commercial center, but it was also a religious center. The Romans were deeply religious. They had thousands of gods. This particular city was known for uh, a great temple to the, uh, to the goddess Diana. And thousands of people came and worshipped there and paid money to go there. It's considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so this was a town familiar with commerce, this was a town familiar with worship, but it was deeply lost. It was a pagan town. And so the Christians that were there were Christians that were constantly under siege, physically and spiritually. And so Paul wrote to them to encourage them that their calling was to glorify God and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to a watching and dying world, particularly in the city of Ephesus. And it brings us here this morning to First Presbyterian, where you sit, to Macon, Georgia, to the east coast of the United States, to this world that we live in. We have been uniquely placed here. You have been uniquely placed here in this sanctuary today to worship God, to know Christ, and then to go and to share Christ. We live in a deeply pagan world, a progressively pagan world that is walking away from Christianity, walking away from Christ, the teachings of Scripture. We live in a, at a crossroads, in essence. The United States, millions and perhaps even billions of people come through the United States over the decades. What an amazing opportunity it is for the gospel to be shared and then to be taken to the far corners of the world. We have an opportunity here in Macon as we are along the I-75 corridor between here and Atlanta. Atlanta is such a hub of activity with the air, airlines and the airports People coming and going all the time. We have an opportunity to share the gospel, and then it's spread out and sent out. You have an opportunity from here to go to your homes, to go to your businesses, to your neighborhoods, and share the gospel, and it's spread out from there. So this book of Ephesians is not just written to some people 2,000 years ago. It's written to us. These pages are written for us. This message is for us and a watching and dying world. Ephesians 1, 3 paints such a wonderful picture. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't just simply say here that we're given some spiritual blessings, a few a, a trickle of spiritual blessings it says every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And Paul paints that wonderful picture of what those blessings look like. In these 14 verses, Paul reminds us that this list 
includes the fact that God has elected us. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven our sins. He's revealed his purpose in history. He's sealed us by the Holy Spirit and given us an inheritance that will last forever. Summarized by one word, and it is salvation. The rich blessings that God has given us, that he's poured into our lives, comes through Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers to us. While we don't have time this morning to look at all of these theological issues, these doctrines that are so richly laid out here, we will look at a couple of things. We'll look at the how and the why all these are accomplished. There's a beautiful outline that's laid out here by Paul that many have seen. It's a Trinitarian outline. It's a God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit outline. We're going to walk through that this morning. These benefits listed here this morning come from God the Father who planned our salvation, who elected us to salvation. The benefits listed here become ours in Jesus Christ who secured for us this salvation by his life, death, and resurrection. And the benefits listed here are applied to us by the Holy Spirit. They're sealed. We're marked as belonging to God. So why do we receive God's spiritual blessings? Why do we receive God's spiritual blessings? Why has he chosen to lavish on us this wondrous salvation? Is it because of us? Have we earned it? Are we such good people that God looks down and says, You are wonderful. I've got to have you. Is it because of the things that we've done? Is, are our works so clean and so good that God has to? To love us. We would love this idea, wouldn't we? It makes us feel better to think that we're great people, that God would choose, that God would say, I've got to have you. We love this idea that salvation might be by works because then we're in control. We earn it. It's something that is ours. But God has said over and over again in his word that our righteousness, our actions, our behavior is as filthy rags to him. We bring nothing to the Lord but our sin. But this world wants, us tell, wants to tell us differently, doesn't it? That the humanist mindset that, that is everywhere in our culture says that we're getting better. That we're, we're starting to get it as a people. We're starting to figure life out. We've pushed God aside and we've, we've thrown off the remnants of religion. And now because we're so smart and so advanced that we're, we're getting better, we're improving But isn't it interesting that the more intelligent we get, the more scientific we are, the more technologically advanced we become, the more we deeply peer into the depths of the universe, even down to the very building blocks of life, the further away we get from God. A few weeks ago, Chip mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope, and I went online and looked at some of the images that have been uh, beamed back from there. It is phenomenal to think how deeply into the universe we can see. Someone said that um, through the Hubble, we can see 10 to 15 billion light years away. The vastness of the universe, the variety and number of galaxies is staggering. And the deeper into the universe we can see, you would think it would lead us to a sense of 
how small we are, and yet it seems to do for many the exact opposite. It seems to puff us up and say, look at how great we are. Look at what we've figured out. Look at what we can do. Takes us back to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve did something very similar. Thinking that they would become like God, they, they, if, they, if they disobeyed and ate as Satan tempted them, that they would become like God, and actually the opposite happened. They didn't become wise, they became foolish. They didn't get like God, they became dissimilar, the opposite of who God is. They started out close to God, as close as you can get, and then their disobedience moved them away. And in Genesis 6 with the Tower of Babel, you see a people that is longing to make a name for themselves, to be remembered, to be significant. And yet because of their disobedience, they actually became forgotten, scattered, became more dependent on other things as their languages were confused. You ever make a copy of a copy? You ever take an original and make a copy and then you hand it to someone and they make a copy and, and, uh, and by the time you've made a copy of a copy of a copy, at times it's hard to recognize what the original might have been. In our sin, we have walked away from the Lord, from the original, and from the original that He intended us to be. We look at Him and we think that He's the blurry one. He's the distorted one. Our human eyes see Him And we see him as unfair and unjust. And we walk away. This world denies the depravity of our souls. This world says we're getting better. And yet when we truly peer into the depths of our souls, we see how depraved we are. Total depravity, some call it radical depravity. This idea that that every fiber of our being is, is touched by sin. Every aspect of our lives is corrupted. We are born sinful, and we act on it every day. And alone unto ourselves, we will not improve. We will get worse. We will not move towards God. We will move away from God. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans says there's no one who seeks after God. No, not even one. John 6 reminds us that that no one is going to come to the Father unless they are drawn, because we are dead. We are spiritually dead. And yet God, in His sovereign, electing love, has chosen to give His Son for us. Not because we're good. We are rebels. We are God-haters. But simply because He wants to. He is an electing, a choosing, a loving God. We see in John chapter 11 where Lazarus lies on the bed dead and Christ comes to him knowing that there's no life there, that for Lazarus to walk, for Lazarus to interact, for Lazarus to move around, life must be given. And so he calls Lazarus by name and Lazarus comes forth. He's brought from death to life and that is the state that we are born in. It is the state that we are born in. Some will say that this idea of God's election works against evangelism. I think the opposite is true. That because we're dead in our sins, because we will not respond to God unless he first calls us out of our sin, it's a wondrous doctrine. It's wonderful that God has chosen to reach into our lives, to give us the gift of salvation. And we witness, we tell other, ba- other people about Christ because God has promised that there are those out there that he's working in. 
When we share Christ, there's, there's almost a guarantee that, that someone will respond because God has worked in people's lives. We don't know who. We don't know when. We don't know if it's going to be our, our loved one, our neighbor. So we give, and we spread, and we share, and we tell everyone about Jesus Christ because we've been told that God is an electing, loving God who's going to use us and work through us. And so evangelism becomes this wonderful thing. How about you? Is there someone in your life right now that you know needs Jesus Christ, as far as you can tell? And you've been hesitating, you've been resisting because it's hard. It might cost the relationship, they may get angry. They need Christ Jesus more than they need perhaps even you. Is there a co-worker who you suspect or wonder if they know Jesus? Is there a place in your life where God has called you to be salt and light, to be that witness to someone? I pray that today as we are reminded of God's goodness, that we will be motivated and empowered to go and share the love of Christ. Ephesians here continues and paints this wonderful picture that uh, God has had us on his mind from eternity past, before the foundations of the world. Isn't that a wonderful thought that, that in Jesus Christ we have always been on God's mind? Because he's eternal, because he has no beginning and no end, we have been on the mind of God. What a great and wonderful gift that is. Why did he choose us? He chose us that we might glorify him and that we might become, verse 4 and 6, that we might become holy and blameless, that we might become like Christ. Why did he choose? Because he wanted to share the love of Christ with us. How are God's spiritual blessings secured? They're not secured by our goodness. They're not secured by our ongoing uh, love of him. They're not secured by our reaching out to him. They're secured by Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection. Verse 7 uses the word to redeem. In him, we have redemption through his blood. This word redeem in in the Greek comes from uh, a, a verb, agorazo, which means to buy back. An agora in Greek culture was, was, a, was a marketplace. If you've been down here on a Wednesday afternoon, you've seen the, the marketplace right across the street, a wonderful place where, where different foods are being sold. Uh, a Greek marketplace sold far more than just food. Unfortunately, it also sold people. Slaves were sold in these marketplaces. So Paul intentionally chooses this word that they would understand That when it says that Jesus Christ redeemed us, it means he bought us back from slavery. A price was paid for us to emphasize our need of salvation. If you've ever been to a foreign country, one of the fun things to do is to go to a marketplace. To, to go and, and haggle and barter and uh, buy different items. We were in Mexico one time, and there was a little boy that came running up to us, and he, uh, he wanted to sell his finger puppets. Some of us had no need or desire for finger puppets, but we enjoyed the, the idea of, of the bartering, of the buying. So he wanted to sell um, four or three um, finger puppets for a quarter. Not us, though. We wanted four for a quarter. We were going to barter. 
We wanted more. We didn't think 25 cents was fair for those three finger puppets. We wanted more for our money. And it occurred to one of us, I wish I could say it was me, but it wasn't. One of us says, what are we doing? We're bartering over 25 cents over a finger puppet. Money with which this young boy is going to eat tonight. Because we didn't feel like what he was offering was worth what we were going to pay. The price for our salvation was infinitely more. Infinitely more. Matthew 20, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. He bought us out of slavery to sin at the cost of his life. There was no bartering. He didn't go to the Father and say, These people aren't worth it. That's just too high a price to pay. Christ said, I will pay that price. I will buy them back. They will be mine. First Peter, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect. It's another re- related word in the Greek which means to, de- to buy out of the marketplace with the specific intent of, of this person never going back. We have been purchased at the blood of Christ with the intent that we would never go back to our sinful ways. And yet we do, don't we? We are idol makers. We love things more than we love the Lord. We return to our old master all the time. I was talking about this a little bit in Sunday school. I may have shown my age a little bit, but if you've ever been to the dentist, years ago I'm told, doesn't happen as much anymore, but they used to give you a little packet that had a red pill in it. And you would chew that pill when you got home or beforehand. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You'd chew the pill, and it would turn your teeth red in the places where there was plaque buildup. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Thank you. I felt like I, felt like I had three heads when I was talking to the high schoolers about this. Um, but you would chew the pill, and it would turn your teeth red where the plaque built up so that you could know where you were missing, uh, where you were missing. This morning, if you had a spiritual pill given to you by the Holy Spirit to chew, what areas of your life would turn red? What areas of your life would turn bright red because you've turned it into an idol? Because it's become more important to you than, than God is himself. The children of Israel did it they cried out to Moses and said, Would that we had died in the hand, at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. They cried out to Moses saying, You've taken us away from, from slavery, from imprisonment, from bondage, to die out here. And we'd rather return because there were pots of meat there. They didn't want to trust God. They didn't want to wait on Him. They didn't want to need Him. They would rather return to the idolatry of Egypt than to walk through the wilderness with their God. We belong to the Lord, and He has bought us at a great price. This morning, what idols grip your heart? What idols stain your life that the Lord has paid the ultimate price to free you from? that you and I are continuing day after day to walk back to. 
Someone said, well, do you just walk around with red teeth for the rest of the day? I said, no, the intent is that you will go home and brush to remove the stain, to remove the buildup in the same way. We don't just have our sin pointed out, the idolatry pointed out. We go to the Lord that he'll remove it. Lord, please disentangle our hearts from that which we love. Replace it with the Holy Spirit. Replace it with a love for Christ and for people. Tear down those idols in our lives and replace it with Christ himself. How do we know that we will continue to receive God's spiritual blessings? Because we have a seal, a promise, and that is the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 says, In him we have obtained the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We've been promised an inheritance. How can we know that we will one day take hold of that inheritance? It's because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were given a mark that you belong to the Lord, that nothing, can, nothing or no one can snatch you out of his hand. In Greek time, a seal was used perhaps by uh, someone who was uh, attesting to a document. They would place a mark or a seal on a document to say, This is genuine. This is authentic. This is legal. Perhaps the mark was a mark of ownership. Without beating the yard sale analogy too deeply, the mark of ownership, a red sticker, a yellow sticker, this belongs to this family, this belongs here. A seal was used to protect against tampering or harm. Matthew 27, where Jesus was in the tomb and and the officials came and, and sealed his tomb so that no one could come and remove the body. All of these are true of the Holy Spirit. When we come to know Christ Jesus, we are given something that is unchangeable, unmovable. No one can snatch it away, and it's the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit changes us. He is the one who reveals the sin in our lives. He's the one who replaces the old with the new. He's the one that gives us life. It's a guarantee that... God the Father has marked you as His. It's a, a mark of ownership. It's, it's to protect us from tampering by the evil one. He cannot snatch us out of His Father's hand. It's a wondrous thing to have the Holy Spirit. And it's also a deposit. A deposit of the inheritance that is to come. The first installment, if you will, of a great and wonderful treasure that awaits us in heaven. Another writer called it an engagement ring, where we are betrothed to Christ Jesus before the wedding day. A fun thing when a couple gets engaged is to see the interaction, when people begin to see the couple for the first time. The guys begin to talk about, how'd you you ask her to marry you, where, and the, the girls typically start with, see, here it is, where's the ring, I want to see the ring, and it's a beautiful thing, it's a symbol of of the man's love for the woman to promise to her that they will marry one day. Just as the Holy Spirit is a promise from God that one day we will be wedded to Christ Jesus for all eternity, we will receive the fullness of the inheritance that is ours. It's an engagement ring before the wedding feast. This passage is rich and dripping with blessings. 
dripping with blessings that have been planned from all eternity by God, the Father who elects, who chooses and gives. It is made available to us through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And it is applied to our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit who seals us until the day when we fully will become the Lord's. As I said, this section is a rich medley of theology that emphasizes God's sovereign work through the Trinity in our salvation. And it's meant to lead us to worship in humility, to say, God, apart from you, I would continue to be a hater of you. But because of you, you've chosen me, you've loved me, you've given me Christ, you've given me the Holy Spirit. I have all things. I have this rich flow of blessings into my life. And it ought to lead us to worship this morning. It ought to lead us to go from here to tell others about the good news that we have. It ought to lead us to forsaking idols and return to our one true love, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I get excited to finish each week the book of Ephesians because it is so rich about your love for us, how you've poured out into our lives all of these wonderful things, these blessings, particularly the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to free us from idolatry. Show us those red areas that infect us and remove them and replace them with obedience and a longing to know you. Replace it with a longing to make you known in our homes, in our places of work, our schools, our, our community, our world. Pray, Father, that you would make us into ambassadors for the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.